Tonight we will continue on in our study of redemption accomplished and applied. Um, But before we do that, I actually need to correct something that I said previously in one of these sessions. And um, it has nothing really to do with redemption accomplished and applied. It's actually, you might even think it's a bit silly, but... For me, it's, a, it's enough for me to want to go back and just clarify and correct myself. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would. Uh, some of you are chuckling because I've already uh, talked with you about this privately. Um, but sometimes, sometimes, um, sometimes things preach really well, and they sound really good, uh, but then the Bible kind of gets in the way, and you realize, wait a minute, that's not actually right. And uh, so, I, I, one of the reasons why I want to correct it is because of how emphatically I stated it, even though, as you'll see, it's, it's really not uh, a huge deal. It's actually, uh, <laughs> it's actually the, locate, the proper location of a comma, where a comma should be. You know, when our, the Bible was originally written, Greek had no punctuation. Punctuation was added by our English translators to help us make sense of it. Uh, but punctuation is one of those things that's kind of up for grabs because it's, it's the translators doing their best job at trying to figure out where a thought broke. So in Ephesians chapter 1, notice in verse 4 it says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5, having predestinated us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, if you have a King James or a New King James, you will see that the the translators include the phrase, in love, at the end of verse 4, they include that with being holy and without blame before him. Most all other versions, like the ESV and the NASB, will include the phrase, in love, with the, the verse 5, where it says, having predestinated us. So it'll read like, in love having predestinated us, or he predestinated us in love. So where should this in love go? Should it go with the, that we should be holy and without blame before him, or should it go with the having predestinated us? Now, earlier, I said that the in love should go with the having predestinated us. So I said that the comma in the New King James, or I think it's a colon in the King James, in verse 4 is incorrect, and that in love should actually be with verse 5. And, uh, you know, it makes for great preaching, because it says, oh, it was in love that God predestinated us. But then, I went back and I was studying Ephesians 1 in the original language and looking at the Greek syntax, and I realized I was wrong. And I realized that the King James and the New King James, the way they break the verse up, having looked at it, is actually the correct way of breaking it up. So I, I do believe that the in love should actually go with uh, the, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So the in love there is not talking about um, God's love for us in predestinating us. And that's true, by the way. He did predestinate us in love. But that's not what this love is talking about. It's actually talking about the love that we will have for God on the last day when we stand before him holy and without blame. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll just, indulge me for a second, I'll just give you a a few reasons why that is. 
Uh, number one, within the context of Ephesians 1, the, the verbs and the participles describing God's actions always precede the qualifying phrases. So notice in verse 3, it talks about the one who blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, having predestinated us to adoption. Um, we, verse 7, we have the redemption through his blood. Verse 8, he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. And then I could just go on 9, 10, 11. Uh, the, the participle describing God's actions always precedes the qualifying phrase. Second, four out of the five times that Paul uses the word in love in Ephesians, it follows the clause that it modifies, not comes before. So when Paul uses the phrase in love in Ephesians, four out of the five times it follows the clause that it modifies. So that would, that would fit with this. Third, the other uses of in love in Ephesians all refer to human love. In chapter 4 and verse 2, chapter 4 verse 16, uh, again in verse 16 and chapter 5 and verse 2, always refers to human love. Fourth, six other times in Ephesians, the noun love refers to human love. So when Paul talks about love in Ephesians, he's talking about human love. Fifthly, it's fitting to have joined with holiness and blameless because they balance out each other. So we're, we're holy and blameless before God, and we're also in love before God. So our holiness and our blamelessness, our righteousness, is not a, uh, a rigid, cold righteousness, but it's a righteousness that, that is accompanied with a love for God. And uh, this was very clear to me when I looked at the way the Greek structures this, this phrase. It was not even a question. Uh, so please uh, accept my apology for, for just jumping on an idea because it sounded good to preach. It sounded like, oh, that preaches so well to say, oh, it's in love that he predestinated us. But the reality is uh, that the King James got it right. So there, there you go. There's my, there's my repentance. So now let's look at faith and repentance uh, <laughs> as we move along in our study of redemption accomplished and applied. We are... Now, well into the application section of our study, we, of course, you know, began by looking at the accomplishment of redemption in the, in the work of Christ, which we called the atonement. And now we've been looking at the ways that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, applies um, the atonement, applies redemption. Now, um, thus far, in the application of redemption, we've looked at those things that are exclusively the work of God alone. What do I mean by that? Well, effectual calling and regeneration are divine works in which man has no role. You did not contribute anything to your effectual call. You didn't contribute anything to your regeneration. The same, however, cannot be said for faith and repentance. When it comes to faith and repentance, man does... Have a role. Man does do something. Faith and repentance are where the sovereignty of God meets the responsibility of man. It is not God who believes in Christ for salvation, it's the sinner who believes in Christ for salvation. It is not God who repents, it's the sinner who repents. So, uh, to say that, well, in salvation, Man does absolutely nothing. Well, that's not entirely true. Man does do something. He has faith 
and he has repentance. He believes, he repents. Faith and repentance are sometimes referred to by the single word conversion. So when you hear, when you hear people talk about so-and-so was converted, or when you hear someone talking about you know the gospel was preached and there were 15 conversions, what they're talking about is they're talking about uh, there, were, there was an exercise of faith and repentance. That's what conversion is, right? It, it means a change, and there's no greater change than going from unbelief to belief and going from a life of sin to a life of righteousness. Uh, conversion is the immediate consequence of regeneration. So you can think about faith and repentance as the cry of a newborn babe. God is the one who regenerates, but that regeneration causes a cry. Uh, when John was born, the very first thing he did after the nurse smacked him on the foot was he cried. Now, why did he cry? Well, because he was born and because he got smacked on the foot, but he's the one that cried. You could say, in a sense, that he can't really claim uh, responsibility for his crying because that's just what a newborn baby does. And it's the same thing with a, a Christian. A Christian can't say, well, I, look, look how wonderful I am for having so much faith and so much repentance because faith and repentance are the gifts of God. But that doesn't negate the fact that there are things that sinners must do to be saved. That's just the plain teaching of Scripture. John Murray said, without regeneration... It is morally and spiritually impossible for a person to believe in Christ. But when a person is regenerated, it is morally and spiritually impossible for that person not to believe. So, in other words, there's no stillbirths in the family of God. When God births someone again, he has a 100% survival rate. Uh, And, by the way, there is no chronological like time distinction between regeneration and faith and repentance and conversion. So there's no one walking around outside that's converted but has not yet believed in Christ. All those who are... Because what is regeneration? It's new life. But where is our new life? Our new life is in Christ, right? So uh, those who are regenerate believe and repent. It is true that faith is the gift of God. No sinner can boast in or take credit for his faith because his faith was freely given to him of God. Had God not given the gift, the sinner would have never believed. This, however, does not negate the reality that faith and repentance are things that must be personally exercised by the sinner for him to be saved. Believing and repenting are things he must do. And the Bible says it as such. Acts 16, verses 30 and 31. Uh, He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what did Paul say? Did Paul say, oh, there's nothing for you to do. Salvation is according to the sovereignty of God. So God's just going to save you. There's nothing for you to do. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your house. Acts 2, verses 37 and 38. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said, Oh, salvation's not about what you do. You don't do anything. God does it. No. Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. When we preach the gospel, we do not tell sinners to birth themselves again. 
What must I do to be saved? Well, you need to birth yourself again. No, we don't tell them to do that. Why? Because that's something God does. We tell them to repent and believe. The Bible never commands sinners to birth themselves again. It states that they must be born again, but not that it is their responsibility to accomplish this new birth. On the other hand, the Bible is full of commands for sinners to repent and believe. The, the weight of responsibility is laid on their necessity of repenting and believing. And their natural inability to do so, apart from the new birth, does not preclude the fact that they are commanded to do so. Uh, sometimes you'll hear people make that argument. Well, how could God, if total depravity is true, how could God be just and command sinners to repent and believe when they don't have the natural ability to repent and believe? Do you realize that God commands you to do so many things that you can't do? Can you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind? Can you love your neighbor perfectly as yourself? Of course not, right? Just like, well, you can't, apart from what? Apart from God first giving grace. So there's no contradiction to tell sinners to repent and believe. Uh, We preach faith and repentance because these are the responsibilities of all men and all women. So let's look at these, faith and repentance. First, let's look at faith. This is the first component of conversion, faith. We'll define what it is, but first, let's talk about the warrant of faith. The warrant of faith. What do I mean by the warrant of faith? Well, the warrant of faith is the why of faith as it respects the actions of men. So why should a sinner believe on Christ? Upon what basis does a sinner exercise faith? And, this is an important question, how can he know that Christ will accept him? Well, there's two, there's two warrants of faith. The first warrant is the universal offer of the gospel. Or, you could say, the universal proclamation of Christ to all people. God proclaims Christ to all without distinction or discrimination. It is a universal offer because it is extended to all. There is no category of people to whom the gospel is not to be preached. We are to preach the gospel to every creature, to to every race, to every ethnicity, to every gender, and there's only two of those. Uh, We're to preach the gospel to all. It is a free offer. So what do we mean by, by free offer? Maybe I should write these terms on the board. So we have the universal. That means to everyone. We have the free offer. What do we mean by free offer? Well, there are no prerequisites required to receive the offer. The gospel that we preach doesn't say, well, here's the gospel. Now you, you need to get good enough before you can receive it. You don't have to get perfect, but you know, you've got to get good enough, or you have to prepare yourself, or you have to... No, no, the gospel that we preach is a free offer. There are no prerequisites required to receive it. The gospel is not for those who are good enough, or those who have tried their hardest. It's a free offer. And it is a sincere offer. It's a sincere offer. And I, I think this is extremely important for those of us who affirm the doctrines of grace to see that that when we go out and we preach the gospel, we are really and truly offering Christ to the one we preach the gospel to. 
It is not a, a hypothetical offer. If anyone receives Christ through faith and repentance, they will be saved. That's a true statement. If anyone receives Christ, they will be saved. This is how the Bible presents the offer of the gospel, and this is how we as the church are instructed to proclaim Christ universally, freely, and sincerely. Let me give you a few uh, Bible texts to show you this. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's true in the New Testament, but surely it's not true in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, it was just all about the nation of Israel, right? Well, let me give you a few Old Testament texts that show the free, sincere, universal author of the gospel. The first is in Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 and verse 22. The Bible says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. All you ends of the earth, universal. Anyone who looks to Christ will be saved. Ezekiel 18 and verse 32. Ezekiel 18 and verse 32. For I, this is God speaking, for I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. Uh, You can say that to any sinner. You can say, God does not have pleasure in you going to hell. He wants you to turn and live. And that's a true statement. Then, of course, we have New Testament passages as well. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All you who labor and are heavy laden. Isn't that a, just a precious verse? Anybody who comes. If you, if you are laboring, if you're heavy laden, come to Christ. And then John 6, verse 37. Jesus says, John 6 and verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And listen to this, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So you can tell a sinner, you come to Christ with faith and repentance, he will not cast you out. He will not reject you. He will not say to you, oh no, I'll save some people, but not you. you you're, you're too bad. You're too evil. Uh, you're not the right race. You're not the right culture. You're not the right language. No, no. Anyone who comes to Christ, he will in no wise cast out. Well, secondly, so that's the, the universal free, sincere offer of the gospel. But secondly, we have the all-sufficiency and the suitability of the Savior. So I'm just going to put sufficient and suitable. Christ is all-sufficient and suitable. What do I mean by that? Well, when we preach Christ, we preach a Savior that is completely sufficient and perfectly suited to save anyone who comes to Him. There is no sinner that Christ cannot save. Therefore, there is no one to whom He is not to be preached and no one who ought not to believe in Him. Hebrews 7, verse 25, Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Anyone who comes to God can be saved, will be saved, by the Lord Jesus Christ. John Murray again says this, It is not the possibility of salvation that is offered to lost men, but the Savior Himself, and therefore salvation full and perfect. When we preach the gospel, what are we preaching? We're preaching Christ. 
We're not offering them, well, if you walk an aisle and say this prayer and join this church and get baptized, then you can be saved. No, we're saying Christ has done it all. Repent and believe on Him. Receive Him. Take hold of Him. We preach a Savior who actually died and actually rose again. And those who believe in Christ believe in a sure thing. He's all-sufficient. We also believe He's suitable. That is, He's become man. He's fulfilled the, the law in our place. He's died on the cross. He's offered up His righteousness. He's suitable. There is no sinner that, that, that He cannot save. There's no sinner that He was not sent to die for in that sense. And so, we can say as Calvinists or as Reformed or as those who believe in limited atonement, we can say to anyone, Christ is dead for you. Christ is dead for you. Repent and believe. Now, let me address the tension here. Well, what about the tension between faith and election, right? I mean, how can I say all of these things that the offer of the gospel is universal, free, and sincere, and then also say that God chooses some men for salvation before the foundations of the world? Well, let me give you two answers to this question. Hopefully this will help you. Number one, because God chose sinners for salvation through faith in the gospel. So when God chose sinners for salvation, He also chose the way they would be saved, and that is through faith in the gospel. And He didn't tell us who they were. <laughs> so we go out and preach to everyone, believe in Christ. Um, when God chose to save His people before the foundation of the world, He chose to do so through the means of faith. Faith is God's ordained means. Therefore, a sinner's choice to believe the gospel. And notice I'm saying it is the sinner's choice to believe the gospel. It's entirely consistent with, not in contradiction to God's choice to save them. Right? So God's choice to, to save some and the sinner's choice to believe are not working against each other. They're working together. Um, I had a pastor that used this illustration, and I really do think it's a good illustration. He said, you know, you think about the gate of heaven. He said, on the front of the gate, it says, whosoever believe it. And then you go through the gate, and you look on the back of the gate, and it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. Mm. <laughs> That's a good analogy. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about this before. Um, when, when you come to Christ, you're clueless about the doctrine of election. All you know is someone told you to believe in Christ, you believed in Christ, he saved you. It's after you believe in Christ that you learn uh, about the doctrine of election. And, and so what I'm trying to do in this lesson on faith is to give you a real boldness and a confidence. Don't think you're, you're compromising your soteriology or your, your view of God's salvation by boldly telling sinners, repent and believe the gospel. Christ is dead for you. Receive him through faith. Right? Secondly, though, and this is important, how can we believe both of these things? Because our warrant for preaching the gospel is not the doctrine of election. I don't preach the gospel because of the doctrine of election. I preach the gospel because Jesus promised that all those who come to him, well, he will in no wise cast out. That's our warrant for preaching Christ. We don't preach the gospel and say, well, 
Here's the gospel, and now if you're chosen, you can be saved. No, we preach the gospel and say, Jesus said, anyone who believes on him, he will receive. They will in no wise be cast out. Uh, so, so this is why um, we, we can hold to both of these things, and they're not contradictory at all. They're, they're entirely compatible. Uh, and and it, it really is God's design for salvation. It's, it's the way that he has ordained it to be so that he gets the most glory in the free offer of the gospel, saving sinners according to his eternal will, uh, but yet, yet using our free agency all at the same time. It's just, it's wonderful, really. If you begin to think about how it is that God is applying redemption, you think, there's no way uh, any man could have come up with a scheme. Now, you know, man's scheme would have just had God zapping people from heaven. You know, I'm going to say this one, I'm going to say this one, not going to say that. But that's not how God did it. He proclaims the gospel to all, the sinners make a free choice to receive Christ, but yet that free choice to receive Christ is in accordance with his eternal choice to save them. It's just a beautiful thing to see the way God works. And it gives us great confidence as his people to witness, hand out gospel tracts, tell people about Jesus, tell them what he's done for you, tell them what he can do for them. Um, so that's the warrant of faith. But secondly, uh, I want to look at the nature of faith. The nature of faith. And what I mean by that is, what is faith? What is saving faith? What are, we, what are we telling a sinner to do when we tell them to believe in Christ? Well, <clears throat> theologians historically have identified three essential components in saving faith. Okay, there's three essential components in saving faith. And some of this we got to talk about at our men's meeting on Saturday. So I think, I think it's just providential that, it, that we get to look at it again tonight. Uh, the first is knowledge. Knowledge is a component of saving faith. And the Latin is the noticia. noticia. Faith is more than knowledge, but it's not less than knowledge. Before we can believe in Christ as our Savior, we must first know something about Him. Right? Um, faith without knowledge is what? It's just blind, senseless faith. You can have very, very strong faith, but the power of your faith is not in the strength of the faith itself, it's in the object of the faith. So, weak faith in a powerful Christ is better than strong faith in a God that can't save. Now, I don't want you to have weak faith in Christ. I want you to have strong faith in Christ. But the point I'm trying to make to you uh, is that it's not about just how strong your faith is. You know, you'll, you'll hear people talking about talking about that, you know, well, I've got strong faith, my faith will get me through, only if your faith is in the right thing. And in order for that to be the case, you need some knowledge of who Christ is. Um, there's a, an illustration, remember the, the, in the Old Testament, the, the Passover, God told all the Israelites to, to, uh, to take blood and to paint it on the doorposts. You remember that story? And there's a story of two families. There's one family where uh, the, the dad, he painted the, the blood over the doorposts. And all night long, all night long, the, the son was, Dad, is, is, it, is the blood still there? Are we going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? I'm so worried. I'm so nervous. I'm so worried. But the blood was there. And then there was another family that they, they didn't paint the blood over the doorpost. They just, they had faith. They were just so confident that God would just 
Spare them. Well, the question is, which one was saved? Well, it's the one that painted the blood over the doorpost. You, you say, but, but they were doubting, but their faith was weak. Yes, but their faith was in the right thing. It was in the promise of God. It was in what God had revealed to be true. John Murray says, We must know who Christ is, what He has done, and what He is able to do. Because faith is only as strong as its object. Um, strictly speaking, by the way, it isn't faith that saves us. What saves us? Christ saves us. Faith is the vehicle. So that's why we say we're saved by grace, by God's grace, through faith. In that sense, uh, we're saved through faith, not by faith. Now, I want to give a caution here to knowledge, and this is what we were hitting on. To say that saving faith requires knowledge is not to say that there is a level of theological understanding or, you know, you have to know X amount of doctrines or, uh, you know, be able to pass a test uh, (laughs) before you can have saving faith, right? Uh, Nor do I think that we should then question someone's faith just because later down the line they have uh, some theological discrepancy. Uh, But when we talk about faith require knowledge, what we mean is the knowledge of Christ as their Savior, not the, the intricate, deep, unfathomable knowledge of all that he has done, right? So there's faith. Uh, there, there's knowledge in faith. Secondly, there is conviction or assent. Or assent. And the Latin word there is the word assensus. Assensus. So there's conviction or assent. And Simply, what we mean by this is that merely having a factual knowledge of the gospel is not sufficient. One must affirm the truthfulness of the gospel as it personally applies to them. So just believing that, well, 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Jesus. He lived in Jerusalem and he died on the cross. Oh yeah, I believe that's a historical fact. Well, that's not enough. It's not enough just to believe it. You must give assent to it. You must say, this is true as it pertains to me. That is, he didn't just, he's not just a historical man that died for a group of people. He's my Savior who died for me. So there's a sin. And then lastly, there's trust or confidence. And the Latin here is the word fiducia. And this really, by the way, is the most important element of faith. Not only that we believe that Jesus was an historical person, not only that we believe that Jesus did something for us, but that we rely upon it. We put our confidence in it. We, 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 we shift our relying from ourselves and our own good works, and we start to rely on Christ. And we rely on Him alone. It involves resting our hope on those things we have learned and affirmed. Uh, John Murray says, Faith is knowledge passing into conviction and conviction passing into confidence. It sounds a little... uh, It sounds almost wrong to say it this way. But if you really have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done, you will die... And you will go to heaven. 
and you will be able to march right into heaven. And if someone says, why should you be here? You can say as boldly and as confidently as you can say, I must be here because he died for me. You don't have to go to heaven and say, well, you know, maybe if you let me in, because it's, it's not relying on your own goodness to get in. You're relying in what he did. You're relying in Christ. And so you can have this bold confidence. This is the arena in which the battle of faith is fought, by the way. Uh, when we pray to God that he would increase our faith, you ever pray that? I pray that. What are we praying for? Well, not that he will just give us more factual information. No, we're praying, Lord, by the power of the Spirit, help me to rest the care of my soul and to increase my trust entirely in the gospel. None of these three elements of faith are perfect in this life. Your faith is not perfect, right? Um, Because all too often, what's the great temptation? To not trust in Christ. To to trust in ourselves. To trust in something we've done. And so we, we pray that God would help us and He would increase our faith and give us a greater trust, not in ourselves, but in what He's done. Let's quickly look at repentance. So there's faith, and let's look at repentance. Repentance is the second component in conversion. And one cannot speak of faith without speaking of repentance. They are really two sides of the same coin. They're twin graces. Wherever you have one, you will have the other. So saving faith is a repentant faith. And saving repentance is a believing repentance. This is seen, by the way, in that sometimes the Bible only mentions faith and sometimes it only mentions repentance. Like the two verses I read to you earlier. Uh, when, when Paul was dealing with the Philippian jailer, he just said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Could we then say, oh, well, see there, the, the Philippian jailer, he just had to believe he didn't have to repent. Of course not. Right? You know, Because then Peter will say, well, what must we do? Well, repent and believe. You know, or repent of your sins. Well, because in order to repent, one must have faith. And true faith will always bring with it repentance. Um, some have raised the argument over which comes first. You know, do we have faith first and then we repent? Do we repent first and then have faith? Well, I like how Spurgeon said it. Spurgeon said, "You tell me which spoke on a wheel starts to spin first, and I'll tell you what comes first: faith or repentance." Because there is no, there is no um, chronological distinction. There really is no even logical distinction. They come together. So, what is repentance? Well, repentance is a change of heart, mind, and will respecting God, ourselves, sin, and righteousness. So, repentance is a change of heart, mind, and will respecting God, ourselves, sin, and righteousness. It's a change of heart. We no longer love what we used to love. We no longer have the same desires that we used to have. We have new desires. Uh, It's a change of mind. We no longer think the way we used to think. We have a different thought process. We have a different idea about what life is. But it is also a change of will. Why do I emphasize that? Well, because you have some people that will say, repentance is just about changing your mind. It has no practical effect on your actions. It does have a practical effect on your actions because you can't have a true change to your mind and heart and not have a change to your actions. And it's a change that respects God, 
So when, when God saves you, you think about Him differently. You love Him differently. And you serve Him differently. It's a change about yourself. You think differently about yourself. It's a change about sin. We don't like sin anymore. We don't want to pursue sin. And yes, we stop sinning. Completely? Not in this life. <laughs> but do we fight sin? I, 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 listen, you'll never be sinless as a Christian, but you will sin less. That's, that's a true statement. Um, at the same time, repentance also will bring a great sorrow for sin. So this is the paradox of the Christian life. The, the more you grow in faith and repentance, the less you'll sin, but the worse you'll feel about the sins you still commit. Uh, you know, John MacArthur sometimes has just a, a really quaint way of saying things. And one time he said, yeah, you know, the Christian life, it's like this. The better you live, the worse you feel. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, he kind of said that tongue-in-cheek because I think the, the interviewer said, well, thanks, Pastor John. That's very encouraging. But the point he was trying to make is you grow in, in Christ, you, you start to live a more holy life, but you feel worse about the sins that you do commit. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. In repentance, we turn from self to God and we turn from sin to righteousness. There is belief involved in repentance just as there is repentance involved in belief. There's belief involved in repentance. Well, to repent, sinners must believe what? Well, they must believe they're sinners. They must believe that their sins are evil violations of God's law. They must believe that, that their sins are bad. And that belief causes them to want to change the way they live. Therefore, their repentant beliefs about sin and righteousness lead them to abandon their sins and serve God. Repentance also involves a fundamental belief in who God is. What is it about God that makes you repent? It's not a trick question. It's a Bible, Bible question. His love. Is it his law? Is it, his, is, his, is it the terror of the law? Well, Romans 2 says that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Um, you, don't, you don't quit disobeying your master because, just because you're worried about a bad beating. You, 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 what, what really creates a desire for you to, to love and serve God? It's not seeing how terrible and dreadful and, and wrathful he is. It's seeing how good he is that leads us to repentance. Uh, some will shirk away from preaching repentance because of the impetus that it places on a change of life. And I, I do believe we need to be careful about, we never want to make it sound as if um, our repentance is what merits our salvation. That's not at all the case. Um, notice we're talking about things that happen after God has already regenerated you. So you would never say to a lost person, well, after a lengthy time of repentance, then you can be saved. No, you tell them to repent and believe because those are the first fruits of a regenerate heart. Repentance is a necessary element of the gospel message. The Old Testament prophets preach repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. Paul preached repentance. The rest of the apostles preached repentance. Repentance. Turning from sin is the sure fruits of a born-again believer. There is no such thing as an unrepentant Christian 
any more than there is a such thing as an unbelieving Christian. Your faith is not perfect. Your repentance is not perfect. But they're there. They're, they're realities in your life. So the question is not, have you repented and have you believed? But are you still believing? Are you still repenting? Faith and repentance are the, the two vital components of conversion. They're affected by regeneration. And as we'll see in the next section, that they are the means of our justification. So they, they stand out. Let me just close with how I began. They stand out in the ordo salutis, in the application of redemption, because they are the primary place of man's responsibility in salvation. Is man, is man active or passive in effectual calling? Passive. Active or passive in regeneration? Active or passive in justification? Active or passive in adoption? Active or passive in glorification? Is man passive in faith and repentance? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, neither is God, because he's giving the gift, but man's active in faith and repentance. Therefore, we preach to men, repent and believe the gospel. So, amen and amen. Um, Love this study. Love seeing how it is that God saves sinners.